One of the favorite books I have ever read is a very concise little book by a historian named C. John Somerville, and it is called How the News Makes Us Dumb, The Death of Wisdom in an Information Society. I highly recommend everyone read that book. And the, the title captures it well enough, what the, the, the main premise of the book is. It's, it's the fact that we are very rarely near the truth based on what we read or what we hear, for that matter, even what we see in the news. And this is not a denial of facts that can be reported that a building has burned or that, that someone has been shot or that a certain law has been passed. Certainly, we can appraise those things, but we do not come near to understanding those things simply because we have heard them reported on. We know that they have significance, but we don't truly know what that significance is. We, we don't know the motives behind those things. We don't process the wider relationships. We don't understand what are the ultimate implications of those things who they are connected to and how they are connected and what will happen in the future because of those. We have this tendency to think because we've been exposed to something we know, but exposure is not understanding, it is not wisdom. If the newsmakers ever stop to reflect on their accuracy in reporting something that book is very good about reporting out, they might be a little more restrained. It would be more restrained about their descriptions and certainly about their prescriptions based on their descriptions. And some might even be brought to, to repentance without being compelled to do so by lawyers. That's because understanding events takes perspective. It takes time. It takes reflection. And we need a wider gathering of, of information, more than what is immediately available before we can come to the point of saying that we understand the, the, the provocations and the purposes of the things that happen in the world. And then there's the humbling fact that, that we don't do well with. But there's this very humbling fact that there are forces moving behind and underneath our experiences in this world that are simply beyond our ability to comprehend. There is no way that you can ever get a hold of some facts for what they are. And nowhere is that more clear than in the book of Job. And especially when we come to these final chapters, when we begin to hear God speak. And this is what we're going to do, is to reflect on, on these enlightening words that God finally presents to Job. After all this time, after all these words that have been shared, all these reflections on the, the reason things have taken place. Now we begin to hear from God himself. And so let's pray that, that his spirit would make us able to hear what he would say and what he would teach us. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we desperately need you that we might have understanding. Lord, even as you would put your words before us, we, Lord, we beg you that your spirit would come and, and open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are written in your law, the wonderful things that are written for us in this book, the wonderful truths of who you are and how you are in this world. And that in hearing, Lord, we may be humbled, that we may be taught, that we may obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, if you're curious which direction this is going to go, I'm going to do what I have to always do is to go back and, and give you a review of the book of Job. But after doing that, I wanted to point you first to the fact that the Lord is speaking to Job through the whirlwind. And then we're going to, to attempt to appraise what God reveals about himself and his speeches about himself in creation. This is what we see in chapters 38 through most of chapter 39. God's founding of the earth, God's sovereignty over the heavens, and God's dominion over the creatures. And then we're going to come to those closing parts of this first speech, which again is the first of two speeches that God will make to Job. So again, if you were to do a quick 
scan of the book of Job, if you would look, you would see that even in, in the, the way it appears in your Bible, there, is, there are differences in the way this book is written. There is an opening first portion, those first two chapters, and then there, there's a final chapter that looks similar because their narrative, their story. But the vast majority of this book is actually poetry. It is written in a poetic form. It is Hebrew poetry written to express certain truths that, that, that are not so immediately appraised and require a great deal more reflection. And one way to, to describe what you're seeing and what you're being exposed to in the book of Job is that in the narrative portion, you learn what the book of Job is about. But in the poetic portions of the book, you learn what the book of Job is for. What this book is for is to give God's people a deeper appreciation of where true wisdom is found. So let me remind you of the story of Job. The beginning of the story of Job is greatly loved. He is highly respected. He is universally accounted by all those around him as the most righteous man that anyone knows. Even God himself bestows this this reputation on Job. And not only does he have all of these, these good things about himself personally, but he is also famously wealthy. Everyone knows of the riches of Job. And what's more, they know that he has a family which compares to no other. He has ten children, seven sons, three daughters, these perfect numbers. And they seem to be the perfect family. Everything is going perfectly well. He is as happy as a man can be, and those around him are happy for him. But then after that brief introduction to Job, we are taken out of the scene of Job's life, and we're taken into this courtroom scene in heaven, and we get a heaven's eye view of what's going to happen in and around Job's life. In that heaven's eye view, we watch this saga unfold where, where, where God calls a court of heavenly hosts to come before him. And one of those who comes before him is the Satan, the accuser, who, who comes into the presence of God. And God initiates a conversation with the accuser. He says, have you considered my servant Job? God is the initiator. God starts the conversation. God wants something to happen here. Part of the response of the accuser of Satan is to, to see Job and say, yeah, you're, you know, yes, everything is going great in his life. But does Job fear you for nothing? What he says is that Job's only reason to fear you is because you bless him in every way. Of course, he's going to fear you when he's so blessed. And again, that opens it up for what would become of Job. Job becomes a new kind of superlative where he was all of these things in perfection before all these things in their highest state of good. Now he becomes the very opposite he comes to suffer more than any man. He goes from being the, the, the healthiest and the wealthiest and the wisest of all men to being childless and penniless and a boil-covered wreck of a man. He's literally covered with boils from his head to his toe. You can't imagine the kind of pain that he's in. He's resented by his own wife. He's left in the city dump. He's, he's covered with sores and he's, he's scraping these sores with broken shards of pottery in an ash heap. He is the very definition of pathetic by the time we come to the end of chapter 2. But Job does have friends. He has three friends. And they're good friends. And they're friends who care about him. And they come to him. And they come to him and do something that, that most of us couldn't even imagine doing. In his losses, they come to him and they mourn with him for seven days and seven nights. They, they don't open their mouths to say a single word. They're that good at waiting and coming alongside him and being with him in his time of need. But at last, Job opens his mouth in chapter 3, his, and he, he reveals what is going on with him. He, he reveals what is happening in his heart, and what is happening in his heart is he had decided that his life is not worth living, but not only that it would be good if his life ended, but that it would be preferable if he had never been born. 
And he curses his birthday. He, he pronounces darkness upon it, declares that this is a day that would be best if it were blotted out of history so that I could never have been exposed to the world. Well, this is too much for his friends. They, they hear what he has to say. They hear his complaints. And it's evident that they were hoping for something else to come out of his mouth. What they had expected that, that Job would say when he finally opened up to speak when, and when he comes out of this morning is that this would be the time where he would repent. Because it was obvious to everyone that Job had, some, had committed some kind of terrible sin that had brought upon him all of the horrible things that had come into his life. And so they begin to work on him and, and they, they fill up about 31 chapters trying to convince him uh, to, to just go ahead and come clean and then Job, everything will be better. Well, Job disagrees and he disagrees for good reason because in fact Job is guilty of nothing. The scripture tells us very clearly that Job had done nothing wrong. There was nothing for which he had done up to that point in his life that, that had been the motivation for what would happen to him and the, and the suffering that had come upon him. The case simply wasn't there to be made, although the friends continued to make it. Job, in all of this, doesn't dispute that God is in charge of his suffering. He doesn't doubt that, that there's a sovereign God over this. In fact, this is one thing that everyone universally agrees, is that, is that what has happened to Job is because God wanted that to happen. Job famously says in Job 1.21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's even blessing God in the midst of suffering. At the same time, he is, he is steadfastly going to God. He is continuing to make his case before God and, and, and continuing to say that if, if I could only have an audience with God, then we could fix all of this. And we could set things right because clearly some kind of mistake has taken place. The last time we were together, it's been over a, a month since we were together on this topic of Job, is we heard the voice of Elihu. Elihu was the fourth person who comes in. Elihu, different from the others, Elihu is actually a Hebrew. He represents a, an Israelite man. He comes with, with more wisdom, more knowledge of God. And he's famous for, for, for being full of righteous anger. And he's made some good points. But more of what he had to say was a rehash of what had already been said. At the end of the day, he's still thinking the same thing, Job needs to repent. And one of the curious things that Elihu said, one of the, the cases that he made, is he said, Job, stop with all of the demanding of God requiring that the, he answer you. God doesn't answer people in that way. He said in Job 35, 12, that the, 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 those who are oppressed, they cry out, but God does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Elihu was convinced. He said, Job, stop wasting your time. God's... He doesn't work that way. He said in 37.23, As for the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is excellent in power and judgment and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Elihu was happy to speak for God, and he believed that God would not speak for himself. And all the while he's saying that, the storm begins to rage around him. And you see it, it's evident from the text, that, that there are these indications that as he's speaking, he's declaring God's glory. He's, he's drawn to the images in the sky of a storm that's approaching. And now that storm comes, and Elihu disappears, not to be heard from again in this book. And ironically, the one who had been said it, that he would not speak finally appears, and he speaks, and we hear from God. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. So this morning, we come to the speech of the book. 
It's not the longest speech, but it is certainly the most important speech. It's two and a half chapters. It contains about 770 Hebrew words, about 2,000 words, your English translation. So what does the Lord have to say? Well, look again, Job 38, verses 1 through 3, and says the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Part of what Elihu had said before in 37, he says that this heart, my heart also trembles and leaps from its place here attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumblings that come from his mouth. He sends it forth from the whole of heaven, his, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars and in, in Elihu, he's picturing thunder, but now there's the thunder of God's voice. Storms are chaotic and they were powerful. Ask our Oki pastor about tornadoes. He would be happy to, to tell you all about those. Ask me about the wretchedness of blizzards in North Dakota. I can go on for a long time about those on a 100 degree windshield below zero. Maybe you've been caught outdoors in a hailstorm. You've had those terrorizing moments when, when the, the heavens break open and rocks pour down upon you. And you are running for cover, having windows broken out. God uses this throughout the Old Testament as a favorite way to make himself appear before his people. Even when he has these one-to-one conversation, he comes to them in a storm. It's the most terrifying thing you could imagine in that ancient world. And it's hard to imagine more fearful words being spoken. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 5 and recount the fear of the Lord that was upon the people just before he reveals the law. And they're, they're begging, don't speak to us in that way anymore. We can't handle the thunderings of God. That was even at a time where they were being singled out for favor and blessings before the Lord. They were being given the law of God. And now here is Job, in this case, singled out from all the other men on the face of the earth. And he's appearing before God, not because of a sin of idolatry or not because of lawlessness, but because of one issue. Because Job has challenged God. So God asked him, he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? We probably have no idea what that word, what that phrase means. Who is this who darkens counsel? That's scary to hear God say this. Who is who darkens counsel? I don't know what that means, but I'm frightened. And you should be frightened if you're Job. This is the first time that Job has an accuser who has the full picture. This is the first time so far in the book that someone is making a charge against Job and they actually know Job inside and out. They know his story beginning to end. And what is revealed by this one who has this deep knowledge of Job is that he does this. This is his sin. He darkens counsel by words without knowledge. What he's saying is that Job has confused the issue. Job has, has spoken in ignorance. Where the, where the friends of Job had been flatly wrong, where they had been making false accusations about something that they didn't know, here's one who is speaking, and he says, I see what you've done, and what you've done is you've clouded the picture, Job. You've made things that were clear dark. You've hidden truth because you've spoken to things that you did not understand. How did Job do that? Well, let me remind you of some of the things that he did. One of the things that he did was he accused God. In the course of the debates... Job actually made a number of accusations. It goes back to chapter 3 when he lamented the day of his birth. That was an argument saying that, God, you made a mistake letting me be born. It would have been better if you had not done that. He may not have condemned God outright, but the implications were certainly true. You didn't know what you were doing. Job 7.11, it says he complained against God out of the bitterness of his soul. He called it an injustice. He said it was wrong what the Lord was doing to him. 
Later on in that same chapter, he questions God for his involvement in the affairs of men. He's saying that that there are some things you should leave alone, God. Job 10.3, he says, God is an oppressor. Job 19.6, he says these unmistakable words. He says, know then that God has wronged me. And Job has said these things. He has said these things confidently. He has been sure of himself when he's, he's made these, these, these comments. Job 9.16, he says, If I had called and he answered me, I would not believe he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and he multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. <laughs> Job is actually saying he didn't think the Lord would hear. He, he, he said that, that I don't think he's going to answer me because I don't think that he's paying attention to me. He also says there that he believes the Lord would crush him with a tempest. And isn't it interesting that now here is Job in front of a tempest, standing before God, revealing himself in the storm. And how is Job? Well, he's still very much alive and very much well. Neither of those things will turn out to be true. Further, Job had this increasing confidence that he would gain an audience with God. That he could put things aright when he gained that audience. If we look back to Job 31, 35, it says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That my prosecutor had, a, had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. Joel is on a roll and he's boasting and he's saying, look, if we could just go back, if we could, if we could check the manuscript, check, check the dialogue, check the records, and they will show, you can look and we can see if we go over the, the history, which is accurate, you will see there is nothing in there that deserves what has happened to me. Now, even as we say those things, we, we have to understand that those things are 100% understandable, the, the complaints that Job has. Something is wrong with you if you don't have sympathy for this good man who suffered in the way that he came to suffer. All through no fault of his own, but that doesn't change the fact that these words which he is speaking and the way in which he is speaking them are not spoken into thin air. This is not abstract. These are words to be spoken to a person, to the Lord. He is the creator of all things and he is paying attention. He is listening and he responds. He He says to Job literally, gird up your loins. As a man, and I will question you, and you will answer or make known to me. The God of all the earth is now speaking to Job, and he, he tells him, gird up your loins. You know what that means when it says gird up your loins? It means to, to take your robe and to tie it up, to tuck it into your belt, because you're, you're getting ready for, for, really, for one of two things. You're getting ready for battle, or you're getting ready to run. One of those two things. And the Lord is in inviting Job to battle. I'm sure he would prefer the latter option. He would prefer to run at this point from the storm. The Lord is saying, you have a lot to say to me. You have a lot to say about me. Now you're going to say it before my face. And I'm going to demand that you speak to me. I'm going to require an answer of you. And there's no way to soft pedal what is happening here. This is, this is not Jesus gentle and lowly. This is the mighty Lord revealing himself in his power. The Lord of glory from the tempest, the, the, the whirlwind. This is, this is an EF5 tornado with a Cat 5 hurricane behind it, all in the face of Job, requiring him to answer with the truth. What's he, what's he required to answer? Well, he has to answer some certain questions about creation. This brings us to those three aspects of creation. 
that we find beginning in verse 38, 4. First, it begins with God's founding of the earth. He asked the question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. It's funny because it's really not a hard question to answer, is it? This is a pretty easy one. I was, I, I was not there. I, I didn't exist. The answer reveals what Job needs to have revealed to him. You don't feel smarter having an answer a question like that. You feel a fool. You feel smaller. You feel aware of how much you don't know, how much you can't explain. And that's followed by, by another 15 or so more questions where God recalls these aspects of creation. Very, very many of those are focused on the first three creation days. And these are without a doubt humbling. What the Lord did in the wonder of creating something from nothing. As R.C. Sproul would remind us that, that nothing is a no thing. There was nothing there and Lord gave existence to all that is. You go from nothing to something. You go from, from chaos to order all by the power of God. And the Lord is there alone in his wisdom and power doing all of these things. Calling into to, to existence, dividing and apportioning and stationing and regulating and, and ordering and sustaining everything that is. How does he do it? He does it by wisdom. We're taken back to Proverbs chapter 8. We've looked at this passage before. I'll read a section from it. This, this chapter in Proverbs that glorifies wisdom. And it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. I've been established from everlasting from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet... He had not made the earth of the fields or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men." The point of all of that is that wisdom is with God himself. That how God made all things, all those things that he describes, were by his own wisdom. One that required nothing of Job. No information that Job would help him long to perfect that wisdom. That wonder over God's wisdom is a, is a clear rebuke. And there, there's also another part of the, that rebuke that goes back to the fact that he had darkened counsel. That he had obscured by his words. Again, back in chapter 3, when, when Job lamented, when he broke his silence, he began his lament over the day of his birth. He talked about and wished for that day to be swallowed up in darkness. Job wanted light done away with. He, he, he wanted to hide the truth and reality that he had been born into this world and set in the place in which he had and been given the habitation and the, and the kind of life that he would live, even to include those losses which he mourned. Job darkened counsel. He darkened wisdom. He hid it. But our God is the God who brings light out of the darkness. Job 38, 7, look at that verse. It says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It's saying there that the, the angels rejoiced when creation took place, when the stars appeared. 
Job 38, 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? God's saying, I am the one who brings light upon the world and where wicked people love to be in darkness and do what they do in darkness, I shine light upon it. I shake them out. I reveal what they've done. Verse 19 of 38. He says, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the path to its home. He is rebuking Job for the darkness he has brought to the whole situation. And friends, that's a rebuke that some of you actually don't want to hear because some of you are gloomy. Some of you love darkness. Not only, not only the darkness of evil, but the, the, the darkness of pessimism. The darkness of, of fatalism. The, the, the darkness of staying in low places and wanting to stay in those low, low places to be a victim and to feel sorry for yourself. And again, this is God speaking this to a man who has suffered as much as any man ever has. And yes, there's a time and a place of darkness, but Christians are not allowed to live there. Jesus spoke to them in John 8, 12, and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Ephesians 5, 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Friends, can you live in darkness? Not when your Lord is the Lord of light. Not when your Lord is the Lord of all. Not when all of this world, all of this creation belongs to him in every way. The land is God's. The sea is God's. The heavens are God's. And this is part of the celebration, what we come to in that next portion of verses 22 through 38. God is celebrating his sovereignty over the heavens. And Hebrews, they had, a, they had kind of a unique way of viewing the heavens. They talked about the, 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 the three heavens. And the first heavens would be the, the sky. It would be the, the place where, where, the, where the birds fly and where the clouds move. And the second heavens would be the abode of heavenly body, the, the stars, the, the, the sun, the moon, and that which are unreachable. And then the third heaven itself would be the dwelling place of God. And all of those are being revealed here. He, in verses 22 through 30 and 34 to 38, God is speaking out of the storm and he reminds them of the storm powers, that which comes down from the heavens, snow and hail and rain and wind and thunder and lightning. And some of these he uses as, as instruments of wars and hail and snow. These are, these are weapons uh, against the world. And some of them are life-giving, such as the rain that falls in the, in the desert places. He also speaks of the second heavens. We see that in verses 31 to 33. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? He's saying that I know the paths of the stars because I hung them there. They exist because I brought them into existence. Think of how little understanding ancient humans had of the nice sky, what was there. And think of how much understanding we still don't have about what's out there. But God possesses it all. We're pointed back in verse 36 of chapter 38 to the third heaven too, where he says, Who has put wisdom in the mind or who has given understanding to the heart? What God is saying is that above all these things, behind all of these things, before all of these things, I am. I exist and everything that is, is mine. It belongs to me. It's where I want it to be. And that is always true in every place. That moves us to the third consideration that God has for Job in this, this first of his two speeches. And that's God's dominion over the creatures. 
And here God asks a number of questions. He asks Job about lions and ravens and wild goats and deer, wild donkeys, uh, onagers. Is, that's, if you're wondering what that is, an onager is a wild donkey. Ostriches, horses, hawks, and eagles. And the implication of those is that there's a stunning amount of information that, that, that farmer and rancher Job doesn't know. Yes, he had his, his camels and he had his donkeys. He had his sheep. He had a lot of sheep. But all of these are, are these domesticated animals. And, and God is pointing to the, this wild world beyond that which Job knows. Maybe you've come across this before. We've watched a nature show. You watch, there's so many nature shows that are out there. And they will probably never cease to be made. Where scientists and filmographers and producers, they, they direct your mind. They focus you in on the, the, the life of this one particular animal. And you learned about its ecosystem, its habitat, its, its diet, its, its, its way of giving birth, its, its, its predators, or sometimes its prey. And you know that for, for, for my wife and I, we watch these shows and, and we stupidly, like every time, we'll say this stupid thing. I've never heard of that before. You, you, you kind of know the same thing. And the, and the reason there's a folly in that statement is because of course you haven't. Of course you didn't know something. And, and there's a kind of an arrogance that's betrayed by that statement when you says, I never knew that. That's right, you didn't know it because you couldn't know it because it was outside the scope of, of what you could know because there's a God who has done all these things who knows about every one of them. And we should know because of our finite existence, of course we didn't know about this creature at the bottom of the sea. Think about this, late every July, Discovery Channel, they will come and give us dusted on coverage of one animal. You know what that one animal is? The shark. And how is it that they can have program after program after program for a whole week, nonstop, talking about this one animal? Because we only know a fraction of what there is to know. And there's all of these interesting features that you can go on this, this one kind of animal. And think about the fact, you probably, you probably don't know this, but in 2020, there were over 500 new species that, that were cataloged by the London Natural History Museum. 500 new species that, that people had never before named or classified. In one year, Discovery Channel is going to do a show on each one of those. It's going to take them a while to cover that, right? And you begin to get a sense of the, 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 the scope of God's mind, of what he can see. But not only what he can see, what he knows about, but what he has done. And every one of those creatures, as is pointed to in that text, is known by God, is provided for by God, is sustained by God. And it's even given wisdom or not given wisdom by God, as in the case of the ostrich, when it says that God withheld wisdom. Again, Job knew about domesticated animals, but, but these wild goats and these deer, they have no midwives. They have, they have no problem making their babies. And the wild donkeys, they don't have houses to live in, and they don't go to the city, and they're not restrained by any of those things. They get along just fine. Wild oxen, he points out, are terrible farmers, but somehow they all have food. Ostriches are, are terrible mothers, but we haven't run out of ostriches yet. The zoological world is thriving. It is being maintained. It is, is continuing to get along just fine distinctively and individually and perfectly every one of these creatures not just as a species but as an individual animal is known by God God's not done with the show he doesn't just talk about those he also talks about these ferocious animals the horse in battle and the hawk and the eagle in the air and these things are powerful and they are deadly as a Texan I got plenty of exposure to horses and as an Air Force cadet I actually get to get up close and personal with some hawks and some eagles. 
And in, if you are not impressed by those animals when you are up close and you aren't stricken with, with terror at seeing the, these animals that are living weapons, that if they turn on you, you are in a bad way. You haven't met them. God is sovereign not only of those which, which, which live and get by and sustain themselves peacefully, but also those which are terrors, such as the lions and the hawk and a horse in battle. God has made one from another and he has made them for their purposes. They live and they thrive and they're sustained by him. Some doing terror and destroying and some just trying to survive. Well, the Lord draws his speech to a close and in chapter 40 verses 1 and 2 we, we find out that, that, that God is going to redirect. He's going to, to make clear he requires an answer. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 40, it says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and says, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Think about Job's relation to God. Job has, has looked to God in his distress. Job has, has hope to God in his adversity. And Job has, has given up on everything in his trial but God himself. This is glorious in the way that he has turned to the Lord but he has failed in this. He has assumed that the Lord has made a mistake. He did not believe that God could have a purpose in his suffering. He thought there must be some kind of accident. Job knew, Job knew he didn't have anything to repent of. There was, there was nothing that, that had deserved the kind of chastening that he had received. But he, like his friends, didn't believe God would punish innocent sufferers. And so based on that logic that innocent people should not suffer, God must have made a mistake. And what that says there is that, God, that, that Job's God was ultimately too small. He believed in a transcendent God, a God who is other than him, but at the same time not other enough. Because he believed and he even feared a God who could make mistakes. A God who could for a brief moment not be paying attention a God who could sometimes let a righteous person suffer and, and a guilty person go free. And he didn't think this was a character flaw in God. He thought it was just, just a mistake that resulted in an injustice. And so Job wanted to teach God. He wanted to get the right information in God's hands. He wanted to show God something that he had missed, that things could be made right. And he was willing to risk everything to get that audience. And now that he has that audience, and now that that audience has, has heard from him and made clear that he's heard the things that he said and is speaking to him, it changes his tune. So the one who contends with the Almighty, correct him. What could you say? Job's confidence is gone. Job is, is crushed in the presence of God, not by the storm that could have ripped his flesh apart, but merely by the words of God revealing to him wisdom. Job had, put jo Job had put God in the dock. He had put him on trial. He had wanted to have God answer for what he had done, at least to explain to him what he had done wrong. But now Job is seeing things in a new way, and he responds, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? In the face of the wonder and diversity of the world, he has seen a powerful and a wise creator. And so he says, I am vile. And again, don't be misled by that translation. He's not saying I am evil. He's saying, I am despisable. I am small. I am insignificant. I am of no value. I deserve to be treated with, with contempt. Treated as if I'm worthless in the face of you. 
He puts his hand over his mouth. His arguments are all gone. His bold words have disappeared. He doesn't have, he doesn't have anything else to say in the presence of God. And somehow that is answering all the pain and all the sorrow and the misery and the grief and the anger and the injustice and the bitterness. There's an answer in what God has revealed about himself to all of that pain that Job has been through such that he is ready to place his hand over his mouth not to speak anymore. The presence and the potency of God swallow that up. But God is not finished and there's a reason why. Notice that Job's response is self-referential. His answer doesn't say much about God. It does say a lot about him, and that's good. His posture is humbler. It is chastened. It is backing off of those positions, the accusations that he has made. But, the, but he's still not to the point of hearing what he needs to hear. And that's why we'll go on and we'll find out there's a, there's a second act. There's another, there's another speech by God. Back in the beginning of the book, Satan asked the question, Does, does, God fear, does Job fear God for nothing? Whatever the answer was before, it is clear now that Job has another reason to fear God. He is understanding his transcendence in a new way. That, 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 and maybe I didn't define this before. What does that word transcendence mean? It means that God is, is above, that he is other than, that he is distinct from all that he has made. And we talk about this as sometimes the, the, the creator-creature distinction. But sometimes we misapply this because sometimes we think that God is too big or too far away or too high above to actually care about what's going on with us or to not see us. If you ever think that God is too big to do anything, you've you've misunderstood who God is. This is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God who is revealing himself to Job. God's transcendence extends to his abilities. He can't not see. He can't not care. He doesn't compartmentalize things. He doesn't procrastinate. He doesn't not pay attention and he does not make mistakes. And this is the great takeaway from, 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 from the book of Job is to understand the creator's wisdom and to rely upon that. How God ordered the creation, even the specifics and wild why wild donkeys do things and some things and ostriches do another and lions do another, that all of that to understand, not, not, not what those details are of those things that those animals do, but understand that there's a God who, who understands, a God who has designed, a God who is providing for all of those things. This is why we read in our New Testament reading from Romans chapter 9 that God has his purposes. Let me remind you again, Romans nine eighteen. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You'll say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Job would ask that question, why, Lord? Why why would you do this? The answer is, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? God has his purposes And they are redemptive purposes. They are that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Which he prepared beforehand even for us whom he called. God has his purposes in the world which include light and darkness. As things are ordered and they are ordered for God's people and their good. And it includes the fall into sin. It includes all the terrors of living in a fallen world. And all the injustices that have ever taken place. 
And we have a theological proposition on this, that same chapter that we read from earlier in our Confession of Faith, chapter 5, it also says this, As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposes all things for the good thereof. The writer of Hebrews said this, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through whom fear of death were all their lifelong subject to bondage. God doesn't do that for angels, my friends, but he does it for you. He has remembered you for good. And it took terror in this world on an innocent sufferer, even our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be set free. That is the wisdom of God. We wouldn't carry that burden. And that's revealed for us now as we come to the table of the Lord's Supper. The same God who satisfied the young lions and the ravens, he also satisfies his children. This is What the Lord Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12, he said to his disciples, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barns, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? This meal teaches you the value that you have. I mean, providing grain for you, but the fact that he provided for you by the death of his own son. We come to this table that we would feed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would feast with the Lord Jesus Christ. But only because the Lord Jesus Christ has died and has rose again for us. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you for your remembrance of us for good. We thank you that not one of the pains that we have experienced in this life, not one of the things we have suffered, has been outside of your mind. You have made no mistakes. You have been blind to no evil. There is no wrong which you have done to any man, except that which is done for the son who suffered when he suffered for us, according to your glorious purposes, that he would die in our place. Lord, as we take this meal now, as we come to this table, would you glorify yourself through it and increase strength in us by it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.